come to a truly just Jesus moment today as we talk about power for the powerless, power for the powerless. You know, it's not fun to feel powerless. Um, I'm used to always having options. Even when the airlines mess me up when I'm traveling, it's still nice to know I have status, I have phone numbers I can call. I mean, it's always nice to know you have some options. But there are moments in our lives when we're just truly powerless. I mean, Sandy and I were driving home last year on a Saturday evening from a wedding, and my car lost power. I mean, it just died. Turned out the alternator went out, I had no battery left, and there was just a little emergency for our flashers, a little emergency power. But I pulled over just enough to get sort of on a narrow shoulder, barely on the shoulder, and it was where the road was curved, people were flying by us. It was kind of a dangerous place. And so I thought, well, I have roadside assistance. I pay every month for roadside assistance. And of course, it's the middle of Saturday night in Springfield. They only had one tow truck driver, and he wouldn't show up for almost two hours. And it started getting dark, and our flasher started fading because the battery was virtually dead. And it was not like I could call one of you, like, would you come park right behind us? so that they could hit your car instead of our car. I mean, that wasn't going to work. I mean, nobody could help us. I called 911. It's the middle Saturday evening in Spring a city as small as Springfield, and they couldn't do anything for me. So, so we ended up getting home late that night and safe, thank God. But it was just, I, it's been years since I felt that powerless, like we were truly out of options. We were afraid, and we are just sitting there praying cars wouldn't hit us. And... That moment is a moment some of us live with. I mean, all the time. Some of your lives are somewhere between not that fun to desperate and miserable, and you've been living in that space for some time. Some of you who even know Jesus and believe every word we sang this morning. Because there are moments of just abject powerlessness that can come into our lives. And so we're going to look at a a story of a lady who was a case study in powerlessness. The story starts in verse 24 of Mark 5. So Jesus went with him. Uh, Him, I thought we were talking about her. Him is Jairus, a synagogue leader, who has a 12-year-old daughter who's dying. The story of this powerless lady will be sandwiched in between this story of Jesus ministering to Jairus and his daughter. That will be the beginning and the end. But this, this this story will be sandwiched in the middle. Jairus... Interestingly enough, had a 12-year-old daughter. And on the way, he will heal this lady who's out of options, who's been sick for 12 years. 12 is often a number of uh, uh, representing the people of God, like the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New Testament. Some scholars believe that this is God's sort of double-barrel way of saying, I really have you in my sight. I really care for you, and I can really help you. So you'll see the repetitive nature of the number 12 throughout this as, as we become the target of God's goodness. But after saying, so Jesus was going with him to Jairus, to Jairus's house, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And I, I don't know if you've been crowds where they're just pressing there. I mean, you can barely breathe. You feel like a, you know, you're stuffed together with people like sardines. And, and a large crowd followed him and press, pressed around him. And a woman was there, a woman was there, who had been subject to bleeding 
for 12 years. So he's on the way to visit a 12-year-old who's sick, and this woman who's had bleeding for 12 years uh, is there. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. And if we were to reverse engineer that verse, we would see that she is indeed a walking picture of powerlessness. She's out of options. She's powerless. Bleeding for 12 years, she's probably not got much more left to her life. First of all, she was socially powerless. Unfortunately, Jesus tried to change some of this, but, but if you're a female, you were first of all second class in that culture. And this is likely kind of a menstrual-related bleeding that just never stopped, which meant she probably was never able to marry. And, uh, and she would have had that also, the sec- another social stigma of, of not being married, which means she had very few employment op- opportunities. I mean, she was on her own. She was socially powerless. And there was no social safety net to rescue her at that time. And she was also, I would say, religiously powerless because... According to the Old Testament law of Moses, that that constant bleeding that just never stopped rendered you as a person ritually unclean. So being ritually unclean means that if if you touch somebody else, you'd transmit that uncleanness to them. So nobody wants you around, right? Because if you're unclean, you gotta sort of quarantine for a while and do the rituals until you are ritually pure again. She was ritually unclean because of her bleeding and anybody she touched would become unclean. It's interesting in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament law, with ritual clean purity and, and uncleanness, if you touch somebody you can, that, that's, that's clean, you can transmit uncleanness to them. However, if someone's clean touches you, you don't get their cleanness. It's kind of like you can catch a person's cold but not their health. It just reminds me how insidious in this present age right now that sin and evil is. It's so infectious. And you need a personal connection with God, not, not through somebody else to be truly forgiven and clean. And so she's, she's socially isolated, religiously isolated and powerless. She's professionally powerless. Mark says very specifically she'd been to many doctors. She'd been to every specialist in town and she kept getting worse. Nobody had the cure. And as a result, she was financially powerless. All those medical bills started stacking up until finally she was bankrupt. She was broke. And she had no money left. I mean, even if she did find another doctor, there'd be nothing to pay. She was powerless. And, and I think, you know, you, with that kind of blood loss year after year, she's just physically depleted and powerless. I mean, I'm sure she just had to push herself. And then this crowd's around Jesus, and, and, but she's there and has probably taken every ounce of energy in her because she would be so physically depleted. And I would imagine that means she was emotionally depleted and powerless as well. I mean, she had been to so many doctors. And you know, every time you go to a doctor, you know, your hope, every time you come forward and someone pray for you, your hope gives up. And then if you don't get better, then, it, then boom, disappointment. So, so you try another doctor. Maybe this is it. You get up, and then it just lets you down afterwards. And, and you, you, you ride that emotional roller coaster long, long enough. I mean, I've had people say, even people of God say, I don't even want to hope anymore. 
because I'm so afraid of being let down. This was her story over and over and over again. She was a walking picture of powerlessness. Now, I always want to be kind of church where we can ask the hard questions and be safe. And, and, you know, here's the hard question. If there's a loving God in heaven, how come he lets a woman suffer like that for 12 years? Well, she's going to meet Jesus. Yeah, but it would have been nice if she met Jesus after one month, not 12 years. I mean, why? And we understand that right now we live in this present age. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. And yet Jesus' first sermon in Mark was the rule of God, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's breaking in on the powers of this present age where there's so much evil, darkness. There's so many people who use power abusively. There are so many victims. There are so many hurt. There's, there are dead people in Dallas from the shootings yesterday. I mean, the, the, we live in this age. He's going to bring it to an end. Thank God he's going to put the death sentence on this eventually, on all this evil and victimization and suffering. Jesus said the kingdom of God has begun to break in on this age. Thank God we live in this age, but we belong to the age to come. This changes our perspective. And we never lose touch with, in spite of what may circumstantially be happening around us, there is something that doesn't change about the nature of God. He is ceaselessly and relentlessly good. And so like in Psalm chapter 10, verse 14, but you, God, see trouble. You, you, you do see trouble. Now, he spent all the previous verses just kind of going off on how the wicked are just getting their way and they're victimizing all these people. Oh, God, it's terrible. And it's like the psalmist doesn't question the existence of God, but he comes to the character of God. And, and we don't know, you, you know, why these two ages overlap and why... Why darkness is continuing on. All we know is Satan's on a short leash right now because of what Jesus did at the cross. And, and he's going to be defeated in the end. But, but right in the same breath, after, after just bemoaning all the victimizers that are out there, he said, but you, Lord, do see the trouble of the afflicted. And you consider their grief and you take it into hands. And the victims commit themselves to you. And you are the helper of the fatherless. So you might have come in here today and I'm still struggling with this thing. I've tried everything I can. I've been prayed for 50 times and nothing's changed yet. But you're going to still stand here and declare that the goodness of God is still chasing after you. And that He is faithful. Because we don't think circumstantially or emotionally about our lives. We think theologically. And we understand we belong to the age to come, not this age. The age to come is what defines us. And we belong to a God who, in spite of what I might see or feel around us in the, me in the short term, He is relentlessly good. In fact, I love that second song we sang, His goodness is chasing after us. Sometimes I say, Lord, uh, could you speed up? <laughs> I'm, I'm getting like way ahead of you. Could you just speed up your goodness a little bit? But we come and by faith declare that because we know this about our God. Deuteronomy 10, 18. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. These are the most vulnerable in society. These are the ones most abused by power that's wrongly used. The fatherless, the widow, they're the most disadvantaged. You love the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing, even the foreigner. And he says, you're going to love them as well so that because you, you were foreigners in Egypt. You, you had a brutal life. You were slaved by people who used power over you abusively. But 
but God eventually came through for you. And then Jesus, he stands, he goes home. He started his public ministry, decides to go home to Nazareth, where he grew up. And he goes to Sabbath. Uh, on Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue. And, hey, our boy's back. Let's let him read the scripture this morning in service. So they hand Jesus a scroll. He opens it up to Isaiah chapter 63. Everybody knew Isaiah 63 was talking about the Messiah to finally come and give us deliverance and relief. And so he opens to 63. Chapter 63 of Isaiah begins reading. And Luke, in Luke 4, quotes exactly what he read out of Isaiah 63 in the Old Testament hundreds of years earlier. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim news to the rich and privileged. Mm -mm. That's not our God. Our God never loses track of the victim or the weak. But he's proclaimed, he's anointed me. That's the giving of the Spirit of God upon him to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and addicts and everybody who's trapped. He sent me to proclaim freedom for freedom for prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Interesting enough, the next line in Isaiah says, and the day of judgment, but Jesus stopped short of that because he knew with his coming this was the day of the Lord's favor. He's for the oppressed. He's for the powerless. He, he's near to the one and feels the grief of the hurting. So, so here it is. That's where he ends it. He's come to bring favor. He winds the scroll back up, hands it back. Everybody's got their eyes on him. And then he sends shockwaves through his town. It almost gets him killed a few minutes later. Because everybody knew Isaiah 63 spoke of the Messiah. And then Jesus just confidently pronounced, this day, that scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. He was saying, I'm the Messiah. They didn't like that. They thought he was the carpenter who grew up. But Jesus was saying, I'm the champion of the powerless. So what do we do with this? We have a woman who suffered for 12 years, not knowing why God allowed that, but just a reality of our present age. And then you've got a, good, a God who is invariably and relentlessly good. And how do you live in that kind of tension between them? Where, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? And this is why I find this particular story so very, very helpful. Because first of all, she did what we need to do. She, she kept pressing on toward healing. She kept pressing on toward healing. But I've been prayed for it before, nothing happened. No, she just kept pressing on towards healing. Because she said when she heard this about Jesus, when she heard about Jesus, she came up. Remember, she's in a weakened condition. Crowds are just pressing against Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. She probably would have had to be on her hands and knees, uh, kind of trying to weave her way between people's ankles because people's bodies were so pressed against each other. And she just reaches out, and, and maybe Jesus' cloak was just dragging in the dirt. She just reached out, say, even one finger. She said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just touch it, she said, I will be healed. 
if I can just touch it. So this lady, she, 12 years of suffering hadn't deconstructed her faith. 12 years of suffering hadn't made her just despair as powerless and out of options as she was in life. She just said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I can be healed. Uh, Let me encourage you in that. I I just think it's God's general will that he provide for you. That his general will is is that you can recover if you need healing. That's his general will. That's why if I once in a while have a headache and I pop a Tylenol, I'm not feeling like I'm going against God's will, like God doesn't want want me to feel better. If I fall at home and break my arm, you know, I'm probably not going against God's general will to call 911 and have my arm reset. Well, can't God do that supernaturally? Absolutely, He does. And I hope and pray He does more and more of that. I heard a story of somebody recently that broke their arm very badly, and a family member, Kate, laid their hand on it, and they just watched that, that arm reassemble. He can do that. It was his will to heal. But if he doesn't do it supernaturally, it's probably still his will that I get it taken care of. Because his general will is for us to keep pressing towards recovery, keep pressing towards healing. I told you the story sometime that I caught up the years this morning. It was 18 years ago. I was pacing the floor in the middle of the night. I was trying to pray. I think I was more worrying. And I felt like the Spirit of God said, Bradford, just stop. Just look down at your feet, draw an imaginary square around it, and don't step out of that square. I want you to stand the ground of faith, and I want you to consider no other possibility other than I am going to provide for you. You know what? It actually happened last year, 18 years later. I don't know why it took 18 years, but God kept his word. Because why? Unless there's something else sovereign he has in mind, unless there's something else going on in my life that, that needs to be taken care of first. I mean... God's general will is provision. God's general will is healing. God's general will is help you move forward. And this is what she assumed. She said, if I touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And, and I just want to encourage you to keep pressing towards it. But what if God doesn't? What, what if I've been up here 50 times for prayer as we will have prayer workers and just at the end of our service, you'll let any one of you want to have prayer. What if it's done it 50 times? Well, we kind of covered this two weeks ago again, but it's so important. You know what? You, come 51 times. I'm going to keep, I'm not going to kind of cave in and unbelieve and say, God, I don't think you'll do anything for me. Unless he lets me know differently, his general will is for me to keep believing him. If I just touch him, I will recover. So we keep pressing forward towards healing. And if it doesn't happen, it was like those three Hebrew young men uh, we talked about a few weeks ago when when King Nebuchadnezzar, he was evil and he used power abusively and they wouldn't, warn, they wouldn't bow down, these three Hebrew guys, to, to renounce the true and living God and worship this king's idol. So, so he, he threatened to throw him in a furnace. Not a very nice way to die, being burned alive. But they said to him, O king, our God can deliver us. And then the interesting they say, our God will deliver us. Knowing our God is good to those that are victimized and oppressed, the plan is that God's going to deliver us. He, he can and He will. But if He doesn't, I still believe He's good and I'm still going to follow Him. And you kind of need that third point to avoid just getting angry with God, frustrated. God, why didn't you do this? 
I thought you told me to keep having faith. And then when nothing happens, you know what? So you go in armed at all three levels, convinced he can, convinced he will because he's a good God. But if he doesn't, it doesn't change it. I'm still his and he's still good. So that's helped me a lot just to keep pressing towards healing. And in that, like this lady, we just, we just constantly believe that Jesus' power really can flow into our powerlessness. I mean, we know theologically he's good, but personally, that his power really can flow into my powerlessness. So verse 29, she reaches out, she touches him, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. I mean, this is powerful. But the next verse, let's camp on that one for a moment. This is the verse that amazes me. I mean, thank God, 12 years, what mercy God had on her. But at once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Now, everybody's pressing against him, but she touched him in a different way, with a kind of faith that could just draw God's power into her life. But Jesus realized something, something happened, and it said power had gone out from him. You see, God can pour his power into the places of our powerlessness. And then we get to the New Testament, good old Apostle Paul, right? And he said, well, I had a new lesson in this. He tells us all about this in 1 Corinthians 12. And he said, I have this thorn in the flesh. And he doesn't tell us what it was, but it was aggravating and probably painful. And he said, I had so many incredible spiritual experiences that the Lord said to me, just to keep your feet on the ground, just to keep you from pride, I'm, I'm going to give you this thorn in the flesh. So, Jesus, so Paul says, I prayed three times. And every time God said, I'm not going to do it. Well, I thought he was a good God. Well, he may have purposes here that are bigger than us. But all of a sudden, God, Paul takes our spirituality from one dimensionality. Here's one dimensional spirituality. Um, as long as God gives me a good day today, he's a good God. But like one lady actually said to me to my face, if God doesn't bless me, I have no interest in him. That's very one-dimensional. God's good as long as I have a good day. But Paul takes us much deeper. And he said, he gave me this sore in the flesh and said, I'm not going to take it away from you. Instead, in fact, I put it on the screen, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect when you're feeling good. And it's easy to have faith. It's easy to have faith when you're feeling good. And I have lots of faith when everything's going well. And when it's not, and I'm going, God, where are you? And when I'm feeling weak, and I'm feeling that disconnect between 12 years of bleeding, but I know technically God's good. I mean, where do you go with that? And Paul says, here's where I go with that. Jesus told me my power is made perfect in weakness. Get this. I do my best work, God said to Paul, when you can't bring much to the table and you're weak. And so Paul says, I will therefore boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power might rest on me. Now we'd probably want to lock somebody up who just goes around talking about their weaknesses. Think, boy, you have low self-esteem. 
But Paul had learned what we call a crucified life, dying to what we bring to the table. And it's not like, well, I'm going to be angry at God if he doesn't bless me today. But Jesus said, no, there's grace in me that's sufficient because you're going to find in a new way your powerlessness. Not you're feeling good today, but your powerlessness actually attracts my power. And your powerlessness puts you in the vicinity of the flowing in of my power and of my spirit. It's very profound. In weakness, we're strong. I preached for 50 years almost now. I preached at an event for some national leaders last Wednesday here in town, and I was still nervous before I got up. And I'm glad for that nervousness because I I never want to lose touch with how little I bring to the table and how powerless I am in myself. Because after walking deeply with the Lord for a while, you're going to learn that he does his best work when you're weak. Not that he's going to torture you all the time just so he can show off his greatness. But he's your partner. He walks with you. His spirit lives in you. And in your weakness, his power is made perfect. Perfect. So this isn't trite Christianity. This isn't one-dimensional spirituality. This is walking in the spirit and power of God. All our hurts, all our insufficiencies, I mean, there is place there for Jesus' power to flow into your powerlessness. But I'm almost done. But just one more thing happens. I mean, this lady kept, like we should, kept pressing towards healing. And, and she just chose to believe that God's power, could, Jesus' power could flow into her powerless condition. But we also have to remember this. We've got to remember this. Remember that beyond a power encounter, Jesus wants a personal encounter with each one of us. I mean, beyond a, power encounters are wonderful. I'm praying for more of them here at church. But you know what? Beyond that, he wants a personal encounter. So here's the end of this story. Immediately, verse 29, her bleeding stopped. Uh, well, we just read that one. So uh, the next one, picking up in verse 30. He, Jesus, turned around in the crowd. So power flowed out of him. This lady's healed. I mean, we could have called that the end of the story. That would have been perfectly fine. She's healed. And Jairus' daughter is dying, so he better keep hoofing it to get there in time. Well, Jesus instead stopped everything. He turned around in the crowd and asked, like, who touched my clothes? Well, the disciples said, you you see the people crowding against you, uh, and yet you ask, who touched me? Now, from the previous chapters, uh, we, we could understand the disciples are pretty tired and hungry by this point. And now Jesus is traipsing off after this synagogue leader, and they're going, Mama Mia, what's he doing? We need to eat. So they're not only tired and hungry, they're cranky. And Jesus said, who touched me? And they literally turn around and say, uh, you asked who touched you? Read my lips, everyone. But Jesus wasn't going to stop, verse 32. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened, so he keeps looking around. Then the woman, 
knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She's probably fearful because he was now ritually unclean and as far as we know, Jesus didn't quarantine. He, he came to fulfill the law, but you know what? She was probably afraid of that. She may be even afraid of her presumption, like he healed me and I didn't even ask his permission. What's he going to think of me? So she's trembling. She falls at his feet and tells him the truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith healed you. Oh, Jesus healed her. But she wouldn't get, give up reaching out in faith. Your faith healed you. And then he said, go in shalom, peace, which is the ultimate wholeness word. He pronounces wholeness over her life. And she not only had a power encounter with Jesus, but she had a personal encounter with Jesus. And sometimes people say to me, well, I grew up in the Bible Belt. I must be a Christian. No, you can grow up in the Bible Belt and, and not know Jesus at all. Some of you even had supernatural. I, I, I know Christians who have supernatural encounters with God. God's done a miracle in their life but they still don't serve him or know him. I grew up in a background where there were lots of rules. I grew up in a conservative Christian background, like some of you did, and there were lots of rules. I mean, lots of rules. And all the emphasis was on keeping the rules and, the and being a moral person. But you can keep the rules and be a moral person and still not know Jesus. I mean, I don't go to theaters, you know, don't listen to secular music, don't play cards, you know, don't drink. Don't smoke or chew or kiss the girls who do. Um, uh, you know, and especially on Sunday, except for going to church twice, don't do anything. I mean, barely even breathe or eat, you know. And I had friends who missed Jesus because of that. Because even a moral life can keep you away from a personal encounter with Jesus. You can even have a power encounter with Jesus but not know Jesus. And so Jesus ends his story in the most wonderful way I can imagine. I remember once he sent his disciples out, gave them authority to cast out demons and heal. They come back, they debrief, they're going on and on, all their spiritual war stories. And Jesus said, don't be excited that people can be delivered and people can be healed. Just be glad your name is written in heaven. Just be glad you belong to me. And Jesus won't leave the scene it's not enough just for this woman to have had a power encounter. He won't leave the scene until he has a personal encounter with her. With her. Because that's the most important thing of all, that you know him. Whether you have a power encounter on your schedule or not, that you know him. He walks with us and talks with us. You, we, we walk in his spirit every day. We are never alone. He's always attentive to our grief. Every place we're powerless. I mean, it's just drawing his insides out. and He knows how to respond to that and when to do it, whether it's now or 12 years from now or in my case with another answered prayer 18 years from now. But I want to tell you, he is there. He has the victim in mind, the psalmist wrote. He sees trouble and grief. And he is relentlessly and ceaselessly good. So we keep going after healing. We keep believing that Jesus' power can flow into our powerlessness. But we also seek above all else that we know him personally. I'd like you to bow your heads, close your eyes just for a moment.